Greetings, Alpha Seekers. So uh, today is a new uh, format for the exciting Alpha's Next podcast for this Saturday, October 17th. Boy, time moves right along, doesn't it? Even if you're not having fun, it flies. So uh, this is a review of today's Wall Street Journal. In today's paper, I get an email every day. I highly recommend the Wall Street Journal. If you're an investor and you don't read the Wall Street Journal, I think you need to reconsider either your uh, avocation or your reading uh, habits. Because the Wall Street Journal news hole is very, very, very reliable. Uh, tons of content. Too much, actually. You know, but anyway, better too much than not enough. But, you know, I read the Wall Street Journal today, so you don't have to. You don't have to subscribe either, although I would recommend it. You know, you're, it's really worth the money. So, uh, headline, our top story in the Wall Street Journal today, U.S. budget gap tripled to record $3.1 trillion in fiscal 2020. Uh, according to the Treasury, and while that is the top story in the Wall Street Journal, uh, nobody really cares. Nobody's talking about the deficit on this on the stump, as it were. And Pfizer could apply for emergency use of COVID nineteen vaccine by late November. That's about when we're positioned for. Uh, we have some December options on PFE or not on PFE. Uh, BioNTech, I would also uh, suggest taking a look if you're an options person, which most of you probably aren't, but I'm going to recommend to our options team, such as it is, a trade that I heard. Now, this is not a big-time alpha trade, but um, Pfizer itself has some upside. Uh, Mike Coe and uh, Carter Worth, Carter the Charter, were on Options Action Friday and mentioned the notion of a... Uh, some guy did a Twitter video or something. They asked about January 40 Pfizer calls, and they were both very solid on that. And, you know, just as an investment, Pfizer is a nice dividend yielder, and it's got an upside. I mean... You know, this vaccine isn't going to make or break Pfizer, but it's it couldn't hurt. And uh, <clears throat> if this BioNTech, if they end up buying that and it's got some tech that could cross over, then, you know, that could be another whole uh, antiviral line, let's face it. Um, and while I've got uh, the little notes out, let me just add that this is in the, I watch CNBC, so you don't have to. Now, this is stock, all I know is the symbol, I, Idaho, P, Paul, H, Hero, I, Idaho. Uh, Josh Brown says that that's a great 5G play. Now, this 5G thing is all hype as far as I can tell. It's like HDTV or uh, 3D TV. It's like this tech thing that, you know, tech sees a big opportunity to upgrade, and I guess there's some you know, advantages for the providers, but the consumer case is less clear. Like, 
there was somebody on TV on CNBC who was like, the biggest issue I have with my phone is battery life. This makes it worse. So I don't know that the performance uh, characteristics of that are going to be that great. Um, and here's a comment I, I found online, actually. Uh, somebody talking about uh, AIM, symbol Alpha Idaho Major. And I think that's a pharma company. I don't really know what it is, honestly, but it's like the quote is, should be looking at AIM for post-COVID. Nothing else really in the pipeline of big pharma. So I haven't looked at that myself, but I have a note here. But I, I plan on taking a look at that and also IPHI. Although, as I say, many times we try to stick to our knitting and biotech. Uh, negative story about Ernst & Young. The headline is, string of firms that imploded have something in common. Ernst & Young audited them. I was When I was at AMA, Ernst & Young audited the AMA, and they basically imploded. Uh, I remember the, the partner for EY was always in the board meetings and always looked nervous. You know? uh, what else here? It, in, in case there's any doubt that officials are in on the drug trade, uh, especially in like, you know, south of the border. The ex-defense minister was charged with helping the cartel ship drugs. So, you know, it goes right to the top. Come on. This is huge business. So, um, little note here that's kind of dispiriting. More Americans are renouncing their citizenship, uh, mainly because if you live abroad, you still have to file U.S. taxes and you also probably have to pay taxes in where we are. So that's not working for people if they're in Europe, for example. Uh, let's see what else is noteworthy here. Uh, where are we? Third-party candidates could play spoiler in tight Senate races. Third-party candidates are always a wild card. The Supreme Court, this is interesting. I'm just going to try to be kind of circumspect in my comments because I'm still an officer of the Census Bureau. Uh, Supreme Court to consider whether census must count illegal immigrants in allocating house seats. Well, they don't even ask about that on the census. I don't know. And I, I read an article about it. I think I read this article, actually, because it published early before the print edition came out. And... Uh, they're leaving it up to Wilbur Ross, who's about 90 years old and is noted for falling asleep in meetings, uh, to figure out, uh, he runs commerce, which runs census, and he's supposed to figure out how to factor out, uh, quote, illegal immigrants or undocumented, as your semantics prefer. There's no question on the census that asks that. So how would you know? I I don't know how you you would have to somehow come up with a number of estimate and reduce. I, I don't see any rational way to do that. So I would honestly hope that the court would reject that because I get it, and you know maybe you should ask about citizenship on the census, or maybe you shouldn't. I think that's probably irrelevant. 
to a certain extent. I mean, it's obviously a red state, blue state thing, but, you know, since the census was uh, required, they've never asked about, quote, citizenship. It was just like, how many people are here? So, and that gets back to the old, uh, you know, uh, pre-Civil War, you were counting slaves as three-fifths of a person for purposes of uh, representation in the House. So, uh, you know, it's a fraught issue but as to who to count But uh, when you enumerate. But there's, the, if you ask the question on the census, then you're going to stifle response, which is probably, of course, why the red states want to uh, do it, <laughs> you know. But there's some red states that have a lot of Hispanics and other immigrants. You know, people think it's all Hispanics, but it's not. Uh, there's Irish, there's Polish, there's God knows how many people. You know, there's people from all over the world are here. And then you do green cards or what, you know. I mean, it's, it, it's, it's, it, it, it's complicated, to say the least. So, and it would probably result in a global undercount, which would have a political impact, I think. But still, you know, there, there's no way to do it unless you ask the question. And if you do ask the question, you're not going to get as many answers. I don't know, honestly, how much difference that would make, because I think a lot of people who are, you know, have a little bit of an issue are not probably going to respond anyway, you know. So maybe it wouldn't. I don't know. I just don't know how they could do it. Uh, there was a WHO-backed study that found remdesivir uh, has no benefit for hospitalized COVID-19 patients. Well, that, um, I think it's a Gilead drug. They're pushing back hard on that, and justifiably so. I don't, I've lost a lot of confidence. I never had much one way or the other in WHO, but... I have not been impressed with them in this environment, you know. So, uh, Europe is having a second wave. Uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, countries and overseas that have had big-time issues. And uh, it's not just us, folks. And I don't know that a change in administration is going to be that big of a you know, upgrade of our game based on limitations on what the president can actually do. I and mean, you could lead by example, but, you know. Now, here's an article about a guy named Joe Sullivan, who, uh, the third, who helped create the Chicago Options Exchange. And he was a uh, journalist. And he sold Wall Street on this uh, Chicago Board of Options Exchange. And they have a picture of him with a very wrinkled shirt, not a snappy dresser, even by my very low standards. The SEC was apparently uh, down, and uh, this guy got hired in 1968 as assistant to the president. He was a Wall Street Journal reporter. Wow. And started out by looking into plywood futures, and but by then... By 1972, he had this options thing going, and uh, it started out as a very small thing, a smoking lounge next to the vast commodity trading floor. <coughs> and uh, 
became huge. Then he left Sibo, worked at Payne Weber, and formed a boutique options firm. Uh, he died at age 82. So that's an interesting little bit of history. And I guess that's about it. Took him a long time to get it done, though. But his influence waned, and he resigned in 1978. Um, He would have been better off spending more time on the floor, he says. Then he bought a newspaper and played tennis. So He said, The CBOE's creation has given me by far the greatest psychic satisfaction of his life. And that is an impressive accomplishment, I mean. Options have really changed the world. <clears throat> so, uh, let's see. Article in here about an ex-liberal reluctantly supports Trump. That That's noteworthy. I think that's probably one. But um, the argument, this is somebody named uh, Fred Siegel who is a historian and uh, usually votes for losers, if that's any. What he, uh, he sees this, he's got three reasons. And first is foreign policy, which he thinks worked well in the Middle East, for example, with Israel. Second, uh, (laughs) his persistence. Uh, his survivor uh, status. And third is the president sees the president as a champion of bourgeois values under the threat from the clerisy, uh, which is his word for the dominant elites who despise those values and regards Biden as a captive of the clerisy and uh, his running mate Kamala Harris as the embodiment of it. Uh, says, I don't want to see a San Francisco Democrat who's likely to impose the Green New Deal and uh, hard work, faith, family, and autonomy being the bourgeois values. And uh, wokeness, he's not a woke guy. This guy sounds a lot like me, actually. And obviously he is not a popular guy in Brooklyn, you know. So... uh, And he started out on the left and uh, started to, you know, he voted for Ford, voted for Mondale. So, um, you know, his day's done. I mean, (laughs) that America is, in my opinion, history. You know, we're going to see a movement, I think, towards socialism, guaranteed basic income, um, et cetera. And, you know, it's just the way it is. So you can either fight it and get emotional about it, or you can just capitulate and make the best of it. That's what I'm doing. So here's an article about what deters the aggression of cyber warfare, which is interesting. I mean, in my mind, this is one of the least, uh, Noted, I saw an article 
someplace about a new cannon the Army's developing that the Navy may use that shoots 1,100 miles. Wow. Well, that's impressive, but, um, you know, we've got nuclear missiles and other missiles that go even farther. So, uh, let's see. This is actually, I guess, is this a letter to the... No, this is an opinion piece. No, it's a letter. It's actually a letter. Okay. From a guy named Gentry Lane. Nice name. From Anova Intelligence. And he's actually commenting on an article by a guy named Richard Clark, who you may recall was running around with his hair on fire um, prior to 9-11. And he said, the letter reads as follows. Richard A. Clark says, Human distrust is an impediment to the adoption of artificial intelligence enabled technologies for cyber peace. Um, this gentleman begs to differ. Decision makers don't need to understand or trust AI systems any more than they need to understand or trust satellite systems that route digital communications. This guy may be talking his book a little bit. Uh, thousands of commercial vendors of cybersecurity tools assert that the solution to aggression from advanced persistent threats is the right combination of commercial products and a security stack but this is a dangerous deflection from the real national security problem at hand, adversary deterrence. It has taken the U.S. off course to achieving cyber peace. Meanwhile, content marketing masquerades as a legitimate cyber defense strategy, letting commercial vendors develop cyber defense tactics, techniques, and processes is tantamount to letting Boeing plan air combat strategies or cult plan ground attacks, yet the outside influence of commercial vendors is exactly why DOD cyber defenses are so permeable. The conflict of interest from an industry whose success is determined by sales volume is a detriment to national security. Actually, he's doing apparently the opposite of talking his book. While no cybersecurity practitioner would deny the utility of a layered defense, no adversary has ever been deterred by an impenetrable stack. The constant adoption of incrementally improved commercial security solutions won't yield effective deterrence. Focus needs to shift to a broader and cohesive deterrence strategy. The question we need to ask is this. What strategic framework deters adversary aggression in a cyber conflict where civilian industry is part of the theater to achieve the objective of sustainable cyber peace. Well, i got to admit, I don't really understand what he's saying there. Um, he is the chief executive of Innova Intelligence. So it always makes me wonder, uh, or it always causes me to uh, a certain amount of puzzlement as to uh, where we're at in terms of cybersecurity from a national defense perspective, you know, the whole armed forces run on GPS and all these networks and, uh, you know, the whole Internet was created by DARPA, which is the Defense Advanced Research Projects Administration, and it was designed to keep command and control in the case of a nuclear war. 
So the, the whole web is a, basically a defense project that got commercialized, much like a lot of the space program technology. And, uh, you know, so if you could just turn the lights off on the military and they'd all be flying blind. That's scary if you're ever going to get in a shooting war because it gives the advantage to the adversary that doesn't rely on that stuff. So is it mutually assured destruction in a digital way that keeps adversaries from doing that to us? Or is our security with the commercial stack good enough so they can't do it? Uh, or are opponents just too unsophisticated? I mean, we're not really fighting a peer and, you know... Hopefully we won't. Like a China, I mean, Russia certainly is good at this. China is certainly good at this. We're good at it, no doubt. Uh, so, if, you know, if, if we start turning out the lights on each other, I don't know, maybe that just leaves people like chickens with their heads cut off. But there's no war anymore. Uh, on the other hand, maybe those guys in the silos just start launching those ICBMs because they get a, they figure it's an EMP. I don't know. But that, I think, if, if you're tired of worrying about the virus, there's something to take your mind off the virus, you know? What if they, what if the web goes down for the military? Uh, let's see what else here. Everyone has gone crazy in Washington. <laughs> kind of Captain Obvious. And that's been the case for a long time, you know? Um, this is by Peggy Noonan, who's a good writer. Everyone is insane now. I mean, everyone in Washington. The great challenge of the era is to maintain your intellectual poise under pressure. Washington this week looked like a vast system fail. Uh, and she talks about Pelosi... who had an interview with uh, Wolf Blitzer, who was down on her for uh, not approving the stimulus. So if CNN is starting to wonder what's up, boy, you know that that's a problem. And this is a real... Real weird interview. I think Pelosi's sanity is just as much as at, at issue as uh, Trump. This is clearly a personal vendetta. Um, and it's also, you know, the, uh, the, the triumph of politics over common sense, which is typical. I mean, the only thing that matters to these politicians is power. That's it. Their constituents' well-being is merely a means to that end. Uh, so, that's that. But the bottom line is no stimulus until the election. After the election, I should say. Well, so we got here that's worth reading or noting or sharing with you. Mm, let's see. There's a lot of articles in the Wall Street Journal. And 
not that many of them as a percentage are all that interesting to me. But the ones that are, are. So... Here's an article about the Great Chicago Fire. That's actually what prompted me to do this episode. You know, we got some serious challenges in this town. The Great Migration back to the burbs because of the virus and because of the riots and the looting. Uh, I think the virus is going to be beaten. The riots and the looting, you know, the civil unrest, I think, is going to calm down once the election's over, especially if Biden wins, which are, you know, I read some, I put something on the office next website about uh, the the swing states, and they're pretty close. And then that third party thing comes into play uh, in Senate races too. But so we'll see what happens, as Trump says. But, um, you know, I think my base case is there's a, there's a blue sweep and that calms down all the antifas at least. And, uh, hopefully some of the BLM stuff and hopefully the violence, you know, but, uh, and then if the economy starts improving because of the virus, then hopefully that takes some of the pressure off of people and they calm down. But the real question in my mind is this work from home thing, you know, to the extent that that does not reverse and becomes the new normal, the court, the big cities are in trouble because there's no reason in my mind, no rational reason to live here if you don't work here. So there are irrational, you know, non-logical reasons to live here, like culture and nightlife. And as the virus abates, then a lot of this restaurant, nightclub, sports, all that stuff will come back. And the question really in my mind is these folks who move out to the you know, burbs or exurbs, are they going to get bored there? Are they going to find maybe they don't like that lifestyle? Is it going to be like Green Acres or, uh, you know, they're not going to like living in Beaver Cleaver Town? I don't know, man. But if if it doesn't, if that doesn't happen and the people stay in the burbs, I think that it's going to be challenging. But this article that uh, prompted me to actually pop on is about the Great Chicago Fire. I just saw a documentary about it. I was born on the anniversary of the Chicago Fire, October 8th. So you can either send me a late gift or shop early for next year. You don't Who knows if I'm going to be around, you know? So, uh, But anyway, if we could come back from the Great Chicago Fire arguably we could come back from this. You know, the, the the point was made on this documentary I saw the other day is that Chicago's location is unaffected by ravages to the infrastructure. We're still centrally located in the United States uh, from the point of view of rail transport, uh, from the point of view of air transport, which is of course, in jeopardy. But once the virus uh, abates, I think, obviously airlines will recover at some point. So there's a lot of things about Chicago that are just geographic, and geography still matters. Stuff still has to get delivered and shipped. and uh, You know, whether it's Amazon or what, it's still got to move. So uh, 
a lot of the strengths of Chicago will stay. Uh, if the uh, markets get regulated too badly by the uh, Pritzker administration, they may start to think about moving out of here. And it's all digital anyway, so what's the difference? So that's a threat. Um, a lot of people spend a lot of money building buildings, corporate headquarters. Most of them lease so they can walk away. But, you know, this whole culture thing, I think people are getting tired of Zoom meetings. And, uh, you know, at least a couple of days a week, I think, is the projection people will be coming back into the office. So, I don't know, though. I mean, as a property owner in Chicago, I'm really worried that I'm losing it. And uh, I'm going to take a hit. But we'll see what happens. But, I mean, thinking about the fire... You know, if he, if the city came back from that, this really isn't that much. And God knows we've had riots and such before. And the virus, where are you going to go? You know, I mean, yeah, you can go out to the burbs or exurbs, but that'll pass. You know, um, you see these uh, series about Henry the Eighth, and when there was a plague, everybody used to leave London. You know, but they all come back. So that's it. Um, that's your Wall Street Journal review. And so now you don't have to read the Wall Street Journal. There may be some stuff that you thought was interesting that I don't. But, um, you know, if nothing else, you can say, oh, yeah. Yeah, I heard about that in the Wall Street Journal. Pressure friends. So anyway, that's it. Uh, don't forget about the 10-10-10 deal still on the table. Uh, by now, you should know. 10% interest, 10 months, uh, 10,000-ish dollars, plus or minus. For those of you who are waiting for the agreement, it is uh, in the works. Illegal, as they say. So I'll get that out to you soon. And uh, we'll go from there. Plus, you get the upside in our biotech portfolio, which is doing well. Uh, so hopefully it will continue to do well. And if you get in soon... You know, you'll be in by the time the virus uh, vaccine gets approved, and that's where the big upside is. So keep that in mind, folks. So uh, live long, prosper, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.